This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. To begin with, it is uh, the Mayor's Town Hall. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is with us here in studio to uh, talk about things municipal, about your taxes, about a number of different issues, anything that you want to talk about to do with the city of Hamilton and uh, uh, taxation, about how the money is spent, where you think it should be spent, what the priorities are. And Good morning, Mr. Mayor. How are you doing Good today? Good morning. And, you know, I, I heard just recently that uh, seven years from now, the total eclipse will, will be almost right over Hamilton. So something to look forward to, uh, you know, seven years from now. And, of course, we encourage people to be careful when they're watching this uh, partial eclipse. But... Uh, Interesting day. Doesn't happen very often. There is a viewing uh, today. I guess the Astronomical Society, we're going to talk with Gary Boyle about that, but it's going to be at McQuestion Park, TB McQuestion Park, which is on Upper Wentworth, of course, just the other side of the link from uh, Lime Ridge Mall. Uh, and so there'd be a nice little gathering there. It's uh, I don't know, this is almost science fiction coming to life when this sort of stuff happens. It's, it's kind of weird, but... Uh, there you go. Will, uh, they, will they be doing any chanting while they're up there? I do uh, not know. No, no howling? Or, only, uh, only, uh, only Wiccan chants, from what I'm, <laughs> I'm told. But, I mean, that's only a rumor at this stage. Yeah. Uh, but let's not go there. Yeah. Uh, and then there's, I guess, a showing of Rosemary's Baby after that. I don't, I don't know what they're going to do. But it should be fascinating. How you been? I have been good. Thank you very much. Uh, lots going on here. I want to talk yeah. about a couple of different things. We had uh, Burlington Mayor Rick Goldwing on the other day. He is, of course, on the board of directors at AMO. And, of course, they had their annual meeting. And you've mm-hmm. attended so many of these things that you must have lost count yep. over the last number of years. But there's a proposal that the, uh, they talked about at AMO, the Association of Municipalities of Ontario, that I want to get your read on. Uh, we all know about the infrastructure deficit, of course, that Hamilton is experiencing and every other community is experiencing right now. And what the AMO uh, folks are recommending right now is uh, asking the provincial government to raise the HST by 1% uh, on the premise that that money generated would actually go towards uh, infrastructure projects for Ontario cities. Now, uh, we're not uh, <laughs> dismissing the fact that there's a provincial election and a <laughs> municipal election next year, too. Yeah. What's your thought about an elected official <laughs> raising a tax uh, that close to the election? Look, I, uh, I, or on I, a I, philosoph- you might want to attack it on the philosophical <laughs> level and say, well, is this a good way to try to raise revenue for something that's absolutely positively essential? So, I mean, I've, I've, been, uh, I've been the person that's been talking about our infrastructure and, and many others uh, for, for many decades now. Yep. And the need to get on top of that. And, uh, you know, this is not, uh, you know, somebody else's problem. It's our collective problem. And so we have to find ways of, uh, of generating some funds to actually make that happen. And, you know, it's either coming out of the local tax base or uh, some, uh, out, of, out of some other revenue stream that uh, – and, and a number of revenue streams have been looked at. And one of the proposals that came forward was to give uh, municipalities more powers to generate more revenues in different ways. Like Toronto has done. Like, like Toronto, Toronto has. power anyway. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure that I'm – terribly keen on that. I think it's the kind of passing the buck from the province to the municipality. And, you know, so I think, I think, uh, it, it is in one manner or another, uh, you have to pay for these infrastructure investments. Uh, we are seeing significant investments right now between the federal government, uh, and the municipality. So the recent, uh, infrastructure plan that, uh, was, was put forward was a 50, 50 split between the, uh, the federal government and the city of Hamilton. Uh, that causes us to raise money to, to actually contribute. Uh, and there, but there's so much more to do. And, uh, and so where does the money come from? You know, and the, and the province has been uh, you know, looking at creative ways of generating uh, funds out of existing assets, hydro being one of them. So they debt financed uh, the hydro asset, something Hamilton did a number of years ago and mm-hmm. raised a significant amount of money. Mm-hmm. And, and we've been using it not necessarily for infrastructure, but for, you know, in, in, uh, uh, generating community benefit projects, uh, that $137 million. So let me so so all of that to say that at some level or another uh, we're going to have to find a path to uh, to raise the money to be able to afford to do this infrastructure and if we fail to do that uh, that infrastructure uh, deficit will continue to grow and we'll just push that burden onto you know other generations that they're going to have to go find the money so I'm I'm much more interested in doing our part now. You know, I was just in the United States recently, and they have a massive infrastructure problem. I mean, if you think our roads are bad, uh, you know, spend a little time in, uh, in, the, in the United States. And, you know, I was in, in Florida, in Kissimmee area, which, is, which should be, you know, pristine. A lot of people go there. Um, they've got some really significant challenges, and they're, they're doing their best to try and get on top of them. Uh, but it takes money to do. You have to have contracts. You need to employ people, and, and the work needs to be done. So I, I'm, I'm all for creative ways of finding uh, you know, some resources to be able to do this work. And, you know, if, if, a, if a 1% of the GST is, uh, is part of that answer, 
If it's specific, though, and I think this is always the argument you get from people. Is sure, they're, they're you concerned. You take that money. Concerns are going to be just going to go into general And it disappears revenue. into general coffers, and you have no idea where it goes. I, I am totally for And we've done this in our own kind of budgeting process to identify specifically what money we're raising for infrastructure and how it's being spent. Uh, that's exactly what should happen with any any monies that is uh, generated for infrastructure investments. And, uh, and when people see it and know it and understand it, they can appreciate that uh, this is something that we need to do. And it's, you know, the analogy is your house. Don't fix the roof on the house. What happens? Uh, sooner or later it starts to leak, and then you get more damage, and then you've got a bigger problem. So at some point you have to bite the bullet and, uh, and get the work done. So I'm, uh, I'm uh, generally uh, philosophically supportive. Uh, you know, would I think that the province of Ontario would be doing this now in the next little while? Probably not. Uh, in, in the early in the next mandate, I think they'll probably give it a serious look. I mean, the money's got to come from someplace, yeah. and, and if not from the province, then obviously it's, it's going to have to come from property taxes, and I don't know that there's much of an appetite for that. But your point about Florida and the United States, I think, is, is very apt here, though, Mr. Mayor, because as you know, uh, the federal government of the United States has an ongoing infrastructure fund for cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, they fund it every year, notwithstanding as bad as the recession got back in 2009. Nobody touches that because they understand that 85% of the people in America live in cities, and right. they, you have to look after cities. We're not there yet in this country. Governments, I know that the finance minister in Ontario, Minister Souza, and the federal minister of Morneau are saying, oh, no, well, we've got this program and that program. But they all last for about six or eight months. The money's gone, and then that's it. There's no ongoing fund. Uh, that's exactly the problem in, in this country is it's a cap-and-hand approach, and it's, a, it's a, an approach that isn't necessarily universal and doesn't necessarily address where the most significant problems are. It's kind of a, uh, every municipality gets some whether you need it or not. And uh, you know what, uh, we've, we've made the argument in, uh, you know, numerous times with the federal and provincial partners that all the municipalities have bigger problems and uh, shouldn't some of those additional resources go to where the bigger problems are. You know, Toronto's, Toronto's problems, Hamilton's problems, Windsor's problems, all of the older communities, uh, you know, have uh, old, old uh, infrastructure, they have old pipes. Uh, we even had, you know, recently a wooden pipe uh, show up a couple of years ago. Uh, those are those are issues that are much more significant in older communities than they are in newer communities. So there's no definition between old and new, and there's no long-term focused uh, uh, identified resources that are uh, put into infrastructure. Yes, we have infrastructure programs that uh, you know some advocate for, uh, you know, philosophically, and others say no, we shouldn't be doing that now. We don't want any more additional debt. Uh, the federal current federal government has made a significant stride forward in saying we are going to focus on infrastructure and they put their uh, some 60 billion dollars on the table to do that but it's a it's a time limited program and uh, you know infrastructure doesn't disappear in 10 years it uh, it is still ongoing and and our problem is much bigger than 60 billion dollars on a national but the basis. pot of money that they set aside for that is not going to cover the infrastructure deficit in this country. No, it's going to it's going to you know put a little dent in it maybe, but it's going to be ongoing. And then the money's going to run out, and then you and, and Mayor Nenshi and 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 Mayor Coderre and uh, Montreal and right down the list are going to say, well, what are we supposed to do now? Yeah, it's perennial. I mean, uh, you know, we we made the argument with the Conservative government. I think that at one point there was a, a move towards uh, one cent of the GST before they actually reduced the GST. Uh, they uh, we were advocating for one cent of the GST to uh, to be delivered to municipalities for. Infrastructure. Uh, the the government of that day, the conservative government of that day, did not accept that as a as a direction forward. In fact, they did the opposite. They reduced the GST, and so that set us back, quite frankly, on the infrastructure side. I think the uh, you know the GST had it been left at seven percent would have given us two two uh, two cents or two percent to uh, to do infrastructure, which and we would be much so much more further ahead. But they you know the government of the day makes their choices, and, uh, and then we have to live and adhere to adhere to that as a municipality. But we have argued that there needs to be a consistent revenue stream so that we can plan forward. And what what we're we're getting now is we're all being advised to create these asset management plans, which is fantastic. And we have one in Hamilton. We did it years ago, and uh, we're well ahead of the curve on that issue, so we know where our challenges are. Uh, but the uh, the matching funds just aren't there from other levels of government to actually get this work done. Well, the other element to this, too, and you've talked about this in the past, the reality is is when you have these time-limited programs from the feds and the province, let's cut to the chase here. Toronto gets most of the money simply because of its size. And on a national basis, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Calgary get most of the money, and other cities are kind of left to fight for the scraps after that. And I understand that size is size, and they're, they're major communities. We get that, and, and they have needs as well. But there's not a whole lot of equity in that way that that's divided up. 
Well, I mean, I, and I, that's again, me saying I, that. I, 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 I turned it into, you know, older cities and newer cities. I mean, uh, you know, Mississauga is a relatively new city. They don't have a lot of infrastructure challenges that they need to face, but they still get significant infrastructure money. So they're, they're inv- invariably building new. And I, I think that is the wrong thing to do. I think what we need to be doing is fixing first what we have. And then if we want to, as a municipality, build new, well, that's on your own dime. I don't know that there needs to be a national infrastructure program for that. But, you know, fixing, fixing, fixing existing infrastructure in older communities is much more of a challenge. And I would say that I'm, I'm, I, I'm pretty satisfied with what Hamilton's been able to get. But the formula is very hit and miss. And it doesn't necessarily address where the mo- most significant problems are, which is in older communities. And, you know, Calgary would be an older community. Edmonton would be an older community. Communities that have been around 50 or more years uh, are ones that are looking for, uh, you know, infrastructure dollars to renew and replace. Those that are relatively new uh, really don't need it. And why, don't, why aren't we now, why are we not providing those funds to communities that, that need it most? 905-645-3221, star 9900. We'll go to your phone calls for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger in uh, just a couple of minutes. Uh, a bunch of other things here, uh, kind of a grab bag of items. Uh, mm-hmm. is, I know things slow down a little bit during uh, the summertime for city council because uh, staff need to take some time down, and, and so do councillors. And there's only a couple of actual meetings, uh, ma- major uh, committee meetings, but there were some pretty substantial issues yep. uh, that were addressed. Uh, one of them, and I don't know we're going to have a whole lot of time, we're probably going to have to start this discussion and then pick it up after the news break, uh, the motion that uh, the HSR be the owner and operator of the uh, the LRT system. Uh, I was glad to see so many people support it, because that means, I guess, by extension, they support LRT now. Uh, I'd like to think so anyway. <laughs> but there are financial ramifications to that uh, that I don't think were discussed in fullness uh, at this council meeting. Uh, I don't know, Mr. Mayor, that there's anybody that disagrees that wouldn't it be great if the HSR were staffing the LRT. But when you get into operational costs and other costs like this, uh, basically what council was saying is, yeah, we're willing to accept those costs and put that on our property tax base. I got a problem with that. Yeah, which is a departure from where council has been, or at least those are, those, are, those that have been opposed have been saying all along, it should not be costing the local taxpayers. Well, remember that council die. motion, right? As long as sure. there's no impact on Hamilton taxpayers. Right. Council's just brought it upon themselves. And apparently uh, that isn't the case anymore. So, you know, I, I, I put this in the category of some political mischief, to be honest. Uh, what we uh, what we need to do is make sure that the province of Ontario makes the right decision for the interest of the local taxpayers and the project itself. And you know what, taxpayers, uh, you know, are, are need to be protected from a, a long term maintenance agreement. And uh, you know why? I mean, I didn't oppose. I, I oppose the direction that they were putting forward. I don't have a particular problem on the operational side because I, you know, I think the certainly. From an o- operator basis, operator I'm assuming is driver. Yeah, that's what uh, not I necessarily would think. Uh, you know the maintenance and you know day to day operating maintenance of the facility, but the driver I don't have a problem with that, and that's a, that's philosophically that's easy. Uh, they are either be unionized or or they could be uh, you know. Part of the HSR, it really doesn't matter to me, and I think that's fine. The maintenance side, you know, the reason why they put the maintenance onto the design, build, and finance is because you want to make the, the people that are building the facility responsible for the long-term maintenance. That's just a smart move. If they know that they're going to, for the next 30 years, have to maintain this uh, facility, they're going to build something that uh, is uh, cost-effective and efficient, and that's what we want to have happen. Uh, otherwise, you 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 know you're not necessarily saying to them go and build uh, you know a lousy project, but they're the, the same impetus, the same uh, motivation to look at the long term isn't there if they're not also you know well, required to do the long term. Because isn't the implication then if they if you do that, they could technically say okay, here are the keys, have a good life, we're out of here now. It, it, well, and you've heard that before. Yeah. With the stadium, do you really want to go down that road with with a no, with not LRT? at all. And I think that's that's part of the challenge with the stadium is that uh, you know the folks that built it basically handed over the keys and say, well, you know, the problems that are existing now are all yours, and that's we've got lawsuits flying all over the place. We don't want to be there. And I think we 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 I think it's wise for the province to decide that the, those that are building the project also need to maintain it. I think that's a sensible, smart way of doing uh, you know infrastructure work. Quite frankly, so I'm uh, I'm uh, we'll see what the province does. Uh, I suspect. Uh, as I said at the council meeting, that uh, they may very well agree to the operational side and, and say no on the maintenance side because there's just too much risk involved. And, uh, and we want to minimize the risk and minimize the cost of the taxpayers and minimize the maintenance costs. And you do that by tying these two issues together. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Quick email before we get to a couple of other things, too, from uh, Phil. 
Uh, good morning, Bill and, Ms. and uh, Mr. Mayor. Uh, do you agree with Donna Skelly that consulting fees and costs for city projects are exorbitant and something must be done to reduce those costs? Uh, generally speaking, I would say uh, I, I, I think most of those consulting costs are reasonable. But, uh, you know, this particular case that, uh, that highlighted the, uh, the, the parking lot and, so, and city housing facilities certainly is uh, indefensible. So uh, something certainly went awry there and, uh, and uh, glad it was caught. And uh, we do have an auditor that, uh, that looks at all of the projects uh, th- throughout the city uh, on a, a, a monthly basis. So all, all through the year, we've got, actually, we've got a, a new auditor that's looking at much more in terms of making sure that we're doing value for money. So generally speaking, I would say no. Consultants, unfortunately, are, uh, or fortunately, are part of the process. And, uh, you know, either you, uh, you hire out consultants or you have people on staff that can do exactly that work. And that's always the balance that you're trying to create. And, uh, you know, so you can't have it both ways. You cannot uh, have the, uh, the appropriate manpower to do the work and say we're going to, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to pay those people X amount of dollars. And when it comes time to uh, cut budgets that we're going to cut those people off, then, uh, then, we're, then, we, then we're facing, uh, you know, projects that still have to be done, that, that preparatory work still has to be done. And if you uh, don't have the staff to do it, then you go out to consultants to get that done. But you have to monitor those costs and they have to be more closely scrutinized than this particular project that we're talking about, which was the, uh, the parking lot issue and the consulting fee that they delivered there. Yeah, out, Mohawk, of at Mohawk out of Gardens. Out of uh, but, but there are a couple of things about that that we need to talk about. Uh, one, of course, is uh, City has, for the longest time now, had a set of parameters you're supposed to follow when you hire somebody to do consulting work mm-hmm. or any sort of contract work. Uh, about a bidding process, et cetera. That's not always followed. No, and it should be. And uh, in, But, I mean, there are exceptions. So sometimes there are instances where you've got work being done that only one provider, you, you know, realize can do or has has the, the experience and the knowledge and the know-how. And it's actually more cost-effective effe- to continue on. But that's a very, very rare case. And, you know, they have to make that case uh, individually and separately to a committee and council. But by and large, this ought to be a procurement process that ought to be... Uh, uh, bids that are put in, and uh, you know the criteria isn't always the lowest bid number. It is always the ability to do the work, the uh, the amount of uh, staffing and manpower that you have. Uh, do you have the proper machinery and the equipment to get the work done? And then ultimately, price uh, becomes an issue, and that that is a process that needs to be followed uh, virtually religiously, unless there's a you know, extenuating circumstance. But and and no shortcuts. I mean, if if the determination by staff, Mr. Mayor, is we need to sole source this because uh, these guys are really good. This company is really good, or there's nobody else who's qualified, go to council and say so, instead of simply doing it, and then council finds out after the fact, because then they want start to wonder, well, wait a second, why'd you do that? Yeah, and, 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 and I would say it's a very rare instance when that happens, but it shouldn't happen, and, uh, you know, if, if you're going to make a case that things need to be sole-sourced, let's have that discussion, let's put all the evidence on the table, let's have a look at why it is that you believe it to be true, and uh, we'll ultimately make a decision on how we proceed. I mean, consulting costs are... are costs that we're going to bear one way or the other. But we need to be mindful of um, the variables that are exist, the process that is involved in terms of getting there, and uh, also follow up and making sure that the quality of the work that we get is up to standard and up to par. There is another element to this, too, which I don't know that too many counselors uh, really want to hear, but uh, here's, here's an uncomfortable truth for you. Uh, and you've seen this, so you, the number of years you've been on council, both as a counselor and, of course, as mayor. City Council puts an awful lot of pressure on staff uh, to get things done. Mm-hmm. And, and you see this almost every meeting. Where there's some council will come up with some sort of an idea or some sort of a, 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 a report that they want, and they see, we, we want to have this done in the next couple of weeks. I'd like this done. There's nobody on staff that I know of that's sitting there twiddling their thumbs saying, oh, yeah, I'm not doing anything. I'll do that for you. <laughs> Uh, which puts an inordinate amount of pressure on staff, and they simply can't handle the workload. And then these same counselors are complaining about consulting costs and overtime. Uh, they're, they're sometimes the, the, the bearers of the bad news. They're the ones that, that put that pressure on council. Uh, all too often we create uh, you know, insurmountable challenges for our staff to get this work done. So, and then they, and they're faced with making choices about, well, if, if the demand is get this work done no matter what, then uh, you know, we have to find a way of doing it, even though we don't have the appropriate amount of staff. And that leads you right into consulting work, uh, you know, in- inevitably. So yes, we can uh, we can be the uh, the cause of our own challenges uh, by putting too much on the table first for our staff to do uh, new. Uh, you know, it's much better to have a well-defined uh, work plan for the year and that we stick to it. 
yes, you know, things come up from time to time, but let's not vary too far from those because we, we need predictability so that people can plan their work, work schedules, uh, get the appropriate staff in place, and, and, and know that, uh, that uh, the, the work is going to be delivered. Uh, the moment you throw a wrench into that process, uh, you know, you, you really start causing people to look for different creative ways to doing things, and that's when the problems start. Uh, Sandy, B. Kelly at 900CHML.com. Uh, does the mayor support reducing the speed limits on the link in the Red Hill? Yeah, I, I think I do. I mean, I, I, you know, I think it's uh, hopefully one way of, uh, you know, getting people to slow down. And, uh, uh, you know, it would cause us to get into a whole new array of signage. And, uh, you know, that's not maybe not terribly a bad thing. But, uh, you know, I, I just spent a little bit of time in Florida. And most of their, most of their ro- roadways are 45 miles an hour, so about 60 uh, 60 kilometers. And, uh, and they're, we're talking large, you know, fast roadways. So their speed limits are actually much lower than ours. Uh, it started actually many years ago to uh, conserve gas. If you recall back on the gas crunch years, they, their maximum speed limit was a 55 kilometer mi- miles per hour. Uh, and so, you know what, controlling speed is, uh, is really, uh, you know, could, could be very helpful in terms of controlling some of the accidents that happen. I am not as keen on, you know, creating barriers uh, throughout the entirety of the expressway. I mean, you know, there's only so much can do. We're, we're already doing that with, uh, with our waterfalls, creating barriers, and, you know, I'm not particularly fond of doing that either. So, uh, you know, managing speed is probably a more cost-effective way to go rather than creating barriers down the middle of the road so that, uh, you know, things can't cross over. I, I think I prefer to manage the speed. Uh- I, I've always wondered about that. I mean, you know, anytime we go up north in, in the Collingwood Blue Mountain area, I mean, the roads you take up there, the speed limit there is 80. Uh, and those are they're highways for all intents and purposes, mm-hmm. airport road or Highway 10, whatever it's going to be. So I, I always wonder then why would a roadway within city limits have a 90 speed limit? It, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, it was, uh, you know, at the time it was considered to be a connection between the 403 and the 404. QEW, and, uh, and, you know, in some people's eyes, it's a highway. Well, it's actually not a highway. It's a regional kind of causeway or boulevard or, you know, what, what are the other? Parkway. Uh, parkways are, you know, pretty common in m- many places uh, throughout all, a lot of our communities. In Kitchener-Waterloo, they have parkways, and I, I believe the speed limits are, you know, 80 or, or thereabouts. So I don't know why we have this vision of this being a highway. Uh, it shouldn't be a through fare between for trucks, quite frankly, and that's been an argument we've had for quite a while now, that trucks are using this as a shortcut, and that's, that's a bit of a problem. You know, far too many trucks on the road. But, uh, you know, if they're going to be there, let's, let's manage the speed and uh, maybe, maybe actually free up some capacity while we do that. I mean, people are flying through there. Uh, at some point, we're going to have to deal with uh, you know, the impacts of the accidents that are happening, and uh, speed would be one way of doing it. But but you don't like the idea of barriers between uh, northbound, southbound, eastbound, or north, south, east, west? No, I don't. And, uh, you know, it's very, very expensive. Uh, and I think uh, if we manage the speed, it's not going to be necessary. I think uh, people just slow down. Uh, you know, they're really, unless you completely lose control of your vehicle, I mean, you've got a long way to go to cross over the, most of the medians that are there. Uh, I think it's going to be very, very costly to do. And I'm not sure it achieves anything that, uh, that uh, speed wouldn't actually achieve. Gary at B. Kelly. A lot of emails today. B. Kelly, 900CHML.com. What are you going to do to try to resolve the lawsuit between the Tiger Cats and the the Stadium? Well, we'll keep doing what we've been uh, doing all along, which is uh, putting reasonable and sensible offers on the table for them to to accept. And we've done that. We've actually, you know, exceeded uh, what we put on the table based on what we're required to do. So we've tried everything to try and come to terms on this issue. Uh, for whatever reason, it hasn't been achievable, and uh, you know, it, it'll invariably end up in the courts if something doesn't happen. And in the courts, uh, everyone will have to put their uh, their their facts uh, on the table. And we believe that we're you know we're on the right side of this issue. We, we've we've offered more than we're required to do. We understand the impacts of. Uh, not having played three games, but uh, we, we are prepared to compensate for that. And, so, and that's been the issue all along. And so uh, what we're looking for is some, uh, some agreement that, uh, that, uh, that they can accept. The irony is that uh, we are, in fact, uh, in a lawsuit against the province and the operator, not between the city of Hamilton and the, and the, uh, the Tiger Cats, I- ironically. But, but it, that it's relationship all, seems to be the most inflammatory right it now. It is, and unfortunately, uh, you know, I can understand 
I mean, it wasn't my wish to say, you know, let's not talk about soccer until this is settled. I think it can be separated. I think soccer is very important. I think it'd be very exciting to have. I fully appreciate and understand that the Tiger Cats are the only ones that are able to get a soccer franchise. They have a soccer franchise, in fact. And so why not follow through on those discussions and, uh, and let, let's make that good. And then we'll deal with the other issue on a separate basis uh, through the courts. But so, the so council, why, in its wisdom, decided or to lack the other of, Or lack of. Why would they do that then? And, which is really just throwing gasoline under the fire. So there, there hasn't been a shortage of animosity uh, between the Tiger Cats and the city of Hamilton uh, through this entire stadium process. And, uh, you know, it cuts both ways, I think. Uh, it, uh, there's some, there's certainly a sense that, uh, that we, we, we need a more agreeable football team that, uh, is prepared to look at the interests of the city uh, a little bit more, uh, rather than the interests of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And I fully understand why they, you know, they're, they're looking after their, their interests, but it has to be balanced with the greater interests of the community and what we, we are able to achieve in terms of creating a facility for them to play in. And so I, I think there's a sense here that we've been generous to a fault, to be able to provide a stadium at taxpayers' expense with no investment from the, uh, from the, the football team. And uh, there's not, doesn't seem to be a reciprocating piece of gratitude that says uh, that they, uh, they appreciate the investment that's been made. Are you sympathetic toward their position, though? Uh, to, a, to a point. Uh, you know, I can't get into the details, but uh, to a point I am, and, and I fully understand that they were displaced for three football games, and the, the, the agreement that we've had is that we would compensate them for but, those, but, for those but games. But in fairness, even when it did open, uh, we're coming up on that anniversary, I guess, Labor Day was the first game they actually got to play there some years ago. It was only half a stadium. Uh, so technically, I guess, yeah, the gates were open, but they couldn't sell the upper deck, uh, the it's concessions. So it was more than three and, games, in and, fairness. And, and we have uh, what we've put on the table uh, accounts for that. And so I think we've been generous. Uh, they, uh, they, they, they suggest that uh, the, the, the settlement offers aren't, aren't uh, sufficient enough. Uh, I think it's, we've been more than generous in terms of what we put on the table. So it's, uh, I can tell you that it's more than $3 million. And, uh, and uh, I, I would hope that they come around to uh, you know, saying, let's, let's just move on from this and get on to some brighter issues like soccer and get this thing uh, rolling. I mean, let's fill this stadium and let's get these uh, facilities in Full, full, 100% use and bring soccer to Hamilton, which would be spectacular. Well, because I'm looking at this as a taxpayer, and, and frankly, I'm, as a football fan and, and as somebody who wants to see maximum use of the stadium, uh, and it's it's time to, to move on from this. I mean, you know, because we're hearing stories, for instance, that Hamilton's not even going to be considered for a future Grey Cup until this issue gets resolved. I don't know who made that determination, but that's out there right now. Uh, that was one of the reasons I, I think that the stadium uh, got the support that it did at the time, because we say, hey, we haven't had a game here since 1996. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in those days, as you recall, Mr. Mayor, when you were on council, uh, the Grey Cup was a millstone around this, any city's neck that took it on because it was a money loser. Yep. Now it's a cash cow. Everybody yep. that, that hosts the Grey Cup now makes a whole lot of money, a whole lot of goodwill is generated from that. We want to get into that mix, and we're not going to do that until this gets resolved. Well, and, I, and I, again, I would say I was supportive of the notion that we separate these issues, that uh, we can move forward on all the good things that can come out of uh, having our, our football team here and having a CFL uh, franchise and getting on with soccer, and uh, that, that can be a separate issue. Uh, the whole lawsuit and the compensation issue, you know, that can run on a, on a separate stream, and we don't need to cross the two of them over. But uh, council, in its wisdom or lack thereof, uh, decided not to go in that direction and, uh, and uh, you know, obviously, you know, apply a, you know, potentially some pressure to the to the team to kind of get some of these issues resolved in its in its totality. I I would say that that's not totally wrong, but uh, it certainly complicates the issue for other good things that uh, can happen, like a Grey Cup and soccer. There's a, another issue uh, that I wanted to touch on here, and and I know it's to a certain extent. I guess it's out of your hands now because it's gone before the Ontario Municipal Board. Uh, the ward boundary issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got a hearing date for that. The city, of course, has had to hire outside counsel. Uh, which you know is going to be a considerable cost. Um, and, and again, uh, just to, to give some brief history, I don't want to go all the way back onto this, but uh, you were one of the few people around council that was actually trying to find some sort of a compromise so this didn't have to happen. You weren't successful. Uh, what what goes on here? Because, I mean, the city right now is on the hook, potentially, for a lot of money and costs here. 
I, I personally, I think this all stems to the notion that it's it's almost impossible to get councils on their own to decide about ward boundaries. But it's something that the provincial and federal governments don't do. They set aside a separate uh, agency that does that on behalf of both uh, levels of government. They both adhere to that. I, I see. I see no logic to the notion that you can put you know sixteen councillors in a room and get them to uh, in the you know. To abandon their self-interest and uh, and just you know jerry rejig the 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 whole ward boundary. I, I was going to say gerrymander. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, how, and, and, you know, and in part in part that happens. In that part that happens. And how do you take self-interest interest out of this? Uh, you know, you can't absolve that entirely. And uh, you know what? I, I think that the the province has set the city up to uh, to uh, you know have these kind of complicated, uh, unsolvable issues. And basically, what the city said is, we're, you know, we're, we'll we'll look at it. We'll do some we'll do some uh, you know adjusting. But, you know, we don't think it's our responsibility to make these changes. It's better off that some independent body make these changes rather than this council itself. So I've always had that view. Uh, <clears throat> I thought we were led into a process that uh, wasn't going to succeed. Uh, I, I believe that we ought to have one more ward on, uh, in the city of Hamilton. I think that would be a reasonable resolution to all of this. Uh, but it's something that uh, this council wasn't prepared to uh, to delve into. So they pushed it off to the OMB. But is and, that, and my hope is that the OMB will make a decision that ba- better balances the representation in the city of Hamilton. But is there reticence uh, to, to make any sort of change like this based on still this us versus them? Because what I heard from some of the I, – I, I still hate using inner city and outlying council references – but from some of the councils in, in Ancaster, et cetera, that, well, that upsets the balance of power. And I figure, what balance of power? I mean, are we still there from 17 years ago? I'm afraid we are. <clears throat> you know, that hasn't gone away. And uh, that was one of the issues that came out uh, through the whole discussion that we had, that, uh, you know, some members of council thought that, uh, you know, if, if the mayor, I mean, the balance of power has been the mayor, quite frankly, uh, you know, for, for the, from the beginning. And the mayor has switched from, you know, former municipalities to, you know, city of Hamilton on a number of different occasions. So I'm not sure what, what the balance of power issue is anymore, but in the minds of some, it's still there. Uh, they still see their, their independent communities, and I understand that. And, you know, having one more ward on the mountain actually didn't change that significantly. It just added a, uh, a ward that uh, would, would give fairer and more equal representation for the volume of population that's actually up on the uh, upper mountain and in Ancaster. I think that was would have been a wise uh, wise decision to make. It still left disparity. It wasn't wasn't unanimously uh, uh, equal in terms of all areas. It still left a uh, you know award uh, in Flamborough with you know twenty thousand uh, you know residents with one representative uh, as compared to you know award seven or eight where they have sixty thousand. So. Equality isn't isn't the issue. I think community of interest is the issue, but you got to kind of start working towards some sense of equality over time. And I think that one additional ward would have done that. But again, I'd say putting it at the hands of councils, which the federal government doesn't do, the, the provincial government doesn't do. They put they don't put it in the hands of politicians. They put it in the hands of an independent body that looks at it and says, "Here's what we recommend," and they they follow that advice. That's what we should be doing as well. And uh, the province should be setting up some sort of an agency or some sort of a advisory body that makes these ultimate decisions. In the absence of that, it'll get pushed to the OMB. And uh, right now, the OMB is the one that's going to be making a decision of sorts. And uh, and I, 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 I'm pretty sure that council will live with that decision, whatever it is. Is, is the OMB decision binding? Uh, I believe it is. Uh, uh, I mean, can they can they object and can they can they kind of go back at <clears throat> the issue again and ask for additional review? I suspect they can. Can they be overridden by the province if the province were to step in and say, "We respect the OMB's decision, but we're not going to adhere to it"? Uh, I think the province could overrule it, but I don't think the city of Hamilton can. Uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, we're <coughs> out of time. Tons of other stuff. I'm sorry we couldn't get to some of the other emails and calls mm. on this one, but uh, we'll do this again in just a couple of weeks. Thanks so much for the time, Mr. Mayor. It's over already. And if it, it is. Time flies when you're having a great time. If they want to get a hold of you, though, uh, 546... 4200. 4200. That'll get you right into the mayor's office. The dog may answer, but they will get to your question eventually. (laughs) Dash is a lovely dog. He'll 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 show you a good time. Nothing like golden doodles. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. You've heard about this. It's been coming. Well, this is the day, and we're just a few hours away from a total solar eclipse. It's going to occur between 1 o'clock and about 3.49 today. And, yes, you are going to be able to see it here in this area. You're probably asking a million questions right now. We're going to try to answer some of them. 
what is this all about? What are the what are we going to see? What are the implications? Uh, and what is actually happening to make this occur? Uh, let's bring Gary Doyle into the conversation, the backyard astronomer, past president of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, as he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Gary, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. You're one of the most popular guys in Canada right now because you've got all the answers here, Gary. So we're leaning on you here. Are you okay with that? No pressure, man. No pressure. <laughs> All right, let's let's maybe start with the easiest end of definition: uh, a solar eclipse. Uh, and and what, what what exactly is a solar eclipse? How does it occur? Solar eclipse occurs when the the sun, the moon, and the earth are perfectly lined up in space, and which means that the sun will cross over uh, or the moon will cross over the sun, completely blocking it out. But unlike a lunar eclipse where half the world sees and the moon turn orange, only specific areas on Earth will see a total eclipse. And this will occur in the, in the United States from Oregon to South Carolina. It's about a 112-kilometer-wide path, but it goes from coast to coast. And those literally tens of millions of people which have traveled to, to, to this path we'll see the moon completely block out the sun for about two minutes and 40 seconds. But as you move further north off that path here in Canada, we will get only a partial phase. So the moon or the sun will not be blocked out at all, and we must wear those special eclipse glasses to, to view this event. Now, yeah, because I'm just looking at this tr- the map, at the tracking map here, Gary, and uh, uh, I'm just trying to extrapolate from that. We're here in Hamilton, for instance, in southern Ontario, and uh, uh, I, I think we're at about 70, 75%, are we not, in this area? Yeah, you're actually 78%. 78%. Ottawa, only 61 for Ottawa. So you guys are, are getting a, a, a slightly better show. So what we what are we going to see, actually, then, up in the sky? Well, and we should, we'll talk about how we should view this in a few minutes, but right. how is this going to manifest itself, for instance, up in the sky here in Hamilton? Well, slowly, uh, starting about 115 or so, the the moon crossed in front of the sun as, uh, as here, and over the course uh course of time over the next hour or so it, it should it might get a, a, definitely a little dark because only about one quarter of the sun will be visible um but be, what the eclipse glasses will eventually see just a, a little upside down frown from the sun when the moon covers most of it and uh, as i said um, safety precautions are a must with, with this so um but but do not use um regular sunglasses your 500 dollars ray-bans will not do it um, do not use cameras, cell phones. You'll burn them out, literally burn them out, and warranty, I'm sure, will not cover that. Well, let's talk about the, the, the physical damage that could occur if somebody decides to look at this with the naked eye. Unfortunately, we always tell our kids, don't do this, don't do that. And we're always worried about the kids and, and well, even animals looking at, at the eclipse. But adults, of course, we're going ahead, going ahead and do it. Do not do it. Do not look at the sun without protection on your eyes. When the sun's lower in the skies, like last night we had a beautiful red sunset, yeah, maybe you're okay for a, like a tenth of a second glimpse or maybe with, with a camera. When the, when the sun's really, really dark, but up in the sky it's full brightness, um, the damage of, of your eye can, can uh, occur instantaneously. And we don't really have pain receptors in your eyes. So you might notice the damage about 12 hours later when you cannot reach your phone or, or CTV in, you know, anymore. And unfortunately, once the pupils are blown, that's about it. Unlike cutting yourself or breaking a bone, that will heal. But your eyes, totally different. So do not take any kind of risks with your eyes. I'm, so this is a kid, as you mentioned, like a flash photography or something like that, where we're blinded for a couple of seconds. Um, it doesn't really hurt, but we just can't see properly. And uh, I, I guess the key part of that message is what you've just uh, underscored here is that uh, it doesn't go away. I mean, if you damage your eyes, you're in big trouble. That's it, for sure. Um, don't think you'll actually go blind, but still, it's, it's, you can be legally blind, which means you can't drive anymore, and, and so many things. Now, see, that's the problem with, with eclipses, because people think, well, the sun's mostly covered. I can stare at it for two, three seconds to try to see the moon. That's why people get into trouble. It's the staring part. We, we've glimpsed at the sun many times, about a tenth of a second while, while driving your car, you know, low on the horizon. Sometimes we, we just can't help it. But it's that staring at the sun is what we really don't want people to do. All right, so what should we use if you want to look at this thing today? And, and there's going to be a viewing here in Hamilton. We'll talk about that in a couple of seconds. But well, what, what should they actually have as far as eyewear? 
Um, well, it's always these special eclipse glasses you've probably heard in the news uh, so many times. And these are, are made to look at the sun, either the glasses or the, or the uh, little viewers. Um, it's special, specially coated uh, mylar, which is only made for the sun. You cannot see anything else. And also um, astronomers have, again, even better filters for their telescopes. Uh, here in Ottawa, we're going to have 10 telescopes at least set up at the Canada Aviation Space Museum. We're going to pass up a thousand of, of these uh, viewers. I think even the museum has glasses too. But people can also make these little pinhole cameras. Um, in fact, you can just put a, a, a dot in a piece of paper, hold it up, and uh, and look at the reflection down on the ground on another piece of paper, and you'll see a semicircle of the sun. Um, looking at, uh, say, trees that uh, where you have the, the little bits of sunlight through the leaves, they're going to be beautiful pinhole cameras. So that'll be an awesome picture of hundreds of pinholes. Anything now, else? Um, I, I've even seen pictures online like uh, a Ritz cracker. Anything with a little hole will will produce a, uh, a, a projection on the ground or on a wall. Don't look through it. And, and that's the great thing about using a Ritz cracker, of course. You can eat it after. So, yeah, it's, it's a win-win, isn't it? Uh, exactly. But, but I, I don't mean to be frivolous about this because this is really important and, and it can cause some damage. Now, this is not the first time... That, that we've had a solar eclipse, but this is the first time we've had a full-blown one that North America can see, because I can remember, I, 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 this, I'm just throwing this out to you off the top of my head, I think it was around 1965 or so, there was some rumor, it was a partial eclipse, I think it was on a Saturday afternoon, and it turned out we couldn't see anything as it rained, as it, uh, the weather just got miserable anyway. But these do happen, it's just that they, don't, they only happen in certain parts of the Earth and, and, and in varying degrees, right? Yeah, exactly, yes. We did see the... The last total one from Canadian soil back in 1979 okay. through Brandon, Manitoba. Of course, it snowed in Montreal, so couldn't see anything there. But the <laughs> Earth does does play a part and sees a solar eclipse once every year and a half to two years. Uh, because the, the moon, which is a key player in this, has a bit of a tilt to it. So, Which means that some new moons, such as today's new moon, it's above the sun or below the sun. But when the, all the ducks are lined up, now we get uh, a, a nice solar eclipse. And like, and like you said, various parts of the world will see that, that very fine line on the, on, 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 on the ground, that fine path of, of totality. How dark is it going to get? Uh, and, and that's going to differ. You're in Ottawa today, uh, and we're down here in Hamilton. Uh, and that will vary uh, between these two cities. But uh, you mentioned this. Uh, well, let me get into some of the terminology here. But I'll, I'll deal with that question first of all. I mean, we have this mental image of a total solar eclipse that it gets as black as night. Does it actually? Uh, yes. When you're on the path of totality, it gets extremely dark. In fact, you can see some of the brighter stars. You can see two planets, which are Venus and Mercury. Um, so it's it's an awesome, it's almost um, um, uh, evangelical to, to see it live. Um, I'm looking at a calendar right now of a photo of an eclipse, but until you see, it's like being at a hockey game, that to, to see a goal being scored, the excitement of, of, of any kind of sport like that or anything in, in life, far different from seeing it on just on a piece of paper or, or on a video. It's it's truly something to behold. I've never seen a true total one. Um, speaking of which, we'll have the next total solar eclipse closer to Toronto, Hamilton, Ottawa in 2024. Actually comes up over the Great Lakes and up the St. Lawrence River. So we'll be closer to that. You mentioned that term, path of totality. Maybe you could explain to our listeners what that means, Gary. Yeah, path of totality means that, that fine line, like going through the States today, when the when the sun is completely blocked by the moon. And with today's eclipse, it'll be two minutes and 40 seconds for those, again, tens of millions of people on that line. And that is the only stress, the only time people can take off the filters because now no parts of the sun are being seen. You can actually see the small prominences coming off the sun, those massive flares uh, ripping off our closest star. But after about maybe two minutes, it's, Best to put the glasses on because you don't want even a snippet of sunlight hitting your eyes. But let's uh, repeat that again. I mean, that's in this path of totality, and that's not happening here in, in the greater Hamilton area. That's that's going to be further south. That's down in the uh, in the mid in the states, I guess. Is uh, where, uh, yeah, it, it it starts from Oregon, okay, and goes through fourteen states and exits on South Carolina. Okay, so if you're in that path, uh, you can stare at it for a second or two when it's total darkness. 
uh, oh, here. Yeah, for, for, yeah for, for about two minutes. Yeah. Uh, I'm but, sure there'll be a lot of warnings when it's time to put them back on. And, and where that pass really is, all of North America sees some sort of partially uh, phased. So this is just an, an awesome show. Uh, it's, like, it's like Christmas Day for astronomers. This is this is a magnificent, and I th- you know what I find? This is a very sobering experience because it reminds us of, of how small we are and the part we have actually in this universe, that, that things are always moving, constant things are happening. We tend to forget about that. I mean, uh, you know, it gets dark and we fall asleep, most of us do anyway, and you wake up in the morning, oftentimes it's already daylight. Uh, some of us get up around the dawn, and you can kind of see the beginning of a new day and, and some of the stars that you've referenced in the sky, etc. But this this kind of reminds me of this celestial magnificence in which we live. Exactly. And, and just the way how eclipses work for Earth is that when the players with the moon, you can pretty well part the moon between Ottawa and Vancouver. But the sun you can stretch 109 Earths across the sun's belly, and over 1.3 million would fit inside. In fact, I was just on this morning with Henry Burris here on CTV News and use a football field. If you put a, a three-foot-wide beach ball at center field, you know, one inch of the sun would be on the goal line, the other one on the, on the other one, the yard line. And yet other stars, which is just a regular star in the sky, are, are much bigger. But the thing is that the sun is 400 times larger than the moon, but is 400 times farther than, than what the moon is to Earth. So we get this perfect one-to-one ratio. And, of course, you were talking to Henry. Of course, you had to use the football analogy. But he's <laughs> amazing how he picked up on that. Uh, yeah. Henry, by the way, for people who don't know, since he's uh, left uh, football now, he's working, of course, on the morning show up at CTV, on TV up there, doing a, an outstanding job. He's a great guy. And, uh, yeah. oh, we, oh, and, and I just want to send my condolences for Friday night's game. Yeah, thank, to, to Hamilton. yeah, thanks a lot for that, Gary. I did, we were just yeah. getting over the hurt, and you've just opened the wound again. But, okay, Sorry. that's fine. That's fine. Another time, <laughs> but let's 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 talk a little bit about exactly the impact that this is going to have. Now, you mentioned these these don't happen very often. Obvious. I think I saw one statistic that indicated, for instance, uh, this path of totality that you're referring to, which is really going to go down through the states. This is the first total eclipse that they've seen, I guess, since they've been a nation. I mean, this predates 1776, as far as uh, a lot of those parts of the United States are concerned. Well, it's actually 99 years okay. we've had a coast-to-coast path. Of course, there, there have been many partials. Uh, in fact, we even had a partial eclipse uh, a few years ago. Um, going back to Christmas Day of year 2000, we've had partial eclipses. But to have the true total from coast-to-coast has, has been a while. Listen, we're used to cycles. And, and, you know, we just talked about day versus night, light versus dark, etc., when something like this happened, is it, is it true that this has a, an impact on, on animal life, on wildlife, and on plants? Uh, it, it could. It kind of messes I mean, them up, it, doesn't it? But, um, yeah, a little bit. Uh, during a total eclipse, the, uh, the, the, the birds start, stop flying because they think it's night. It, it does tend to mess with them for a little bit, but then after a couple of minutes, they, they, they come back. Um, apparently, the, uh, the, the, the wind picks up a bit. Um, yes, it's just not like a normal time. So it's, it would be something to really see that firsthand uh, down there. So I hope that uh, everyone down on the uh, on the uh, on the eclipse line has good seeing conditions, uh, clear weather, because you know spending thousands of dollars planning for this just to look at cloud or even rain. You can imagine, and and for those that are going to experience this, oftentimes I think uh, probably a lot of them, Gary, maybe for the first time in their lives. Uh, how this would impact people, I, I couldn't help but think as I was looking at some of the uh, the data on this, about in biblical times, because they occurred back then too, and clearly they didn't have the scientific knowledge that we do today. Uh, and it, no wonder some people were talking about pestilence and some of the things that were happening and messages from God, etc. I mean, this is this is a pretty awesome experience. Oh, for sure, because there was a lot of superstition back then uh, that the sun was their god. In fact, there was even a war, I think, in 585 B.C. that they laid down their arms because there was an eclipse. And, of course, the gods were not happy with them. That stopped the war dead right in its tracks. Now, you mentioned that there's going to be another one in just a few years that we'll be able to see as well. Yes, yeah, in uh, actual April 8th of 2024. I got a question for you from one of our listeners who's listening to our conversation this morning, Gary, and this is interesting. They said, since the Earth is always moving, since the sun is, is staying where it is and the, and the moon is moving, why don't these things happen on an annual basis? 
Um, it's just a coincidence, uh, as I mentioned before, the, uh, imagine the Earth going around the sun, and yes, the, the moon goes around the Earth, but the moon is on a tilt, almost like, like if you tilt a, a dinner plate and then rotate it. Uh, something like, you know, with those Chinese circus acts when, when they spin the, the oh, plate yeah, on, yeah. On, on those sticks, well, you have a bit of a wobble to it. So imagine the moon being on a wobble as it's going around the Earth. So sometimes it's above the sun, sometimes below. So it's just in the in the right coincidence, um, we'll get that light up. So it's it's anywhere between a year and a half to two years that that it happens. Uh, too bad it didn't happen every every month, but uh, it doesn't. Well, we just get used to it. As a matter of fact, <laughs> given given the attention span of some people, I mean, the fact that this is going to take about two and a half hours, I can imagine after about half an hour, some people are going to get bored with it and just go on and do other things, get on with their lives. But here's yeah, another but, fun fact, yeah, and yeah, but but. But if I can hold you right there, but yeah. the great thing about people coming out to the viewing sessions, it's a really an astronomy 101 about our closest star. Uh, the sun's a beautiful thing to look at, and as we've already mentioned, a very dangerous thing to look at. It's our life-giving star. If, if the sun was never created, we would not be here. The planets of the solar system were made after the sun was created. So it brings people out to learn a little more about the sky. So we, we love these, these events that... Uh, that, that people are getting away from TVs, tablets, and telephones, as I always call it, the three T's, to learn about the oldest of the allied sciences. There's another fun fact here, too, that uh, obviously you're aware of, but our listeners may not, is that these aren't going to go on uh, forever, that uh, the Earth is constantly moving, but the moon is moving as well. And, and I was told that in about 650 million years, the moon's going to be so far away that it won't have an impact, and these things are going to be a thing of the past. Well, th- there'll be annual eclipses, but the last total eclipse, the total when this when the moon is blocked at the sun will be in about 600 million years and the reason is when the moon was first created from the earth and whatever else hit us way back about four and a half billion years ago that eventually coalesced became the moon the moon was about only about 50,000 kilometers away so instead of your little tides going in and out they were tidal waves and over time, the moon is slowly moving away from Earth at about the rate of a width of a golf ball per year. So after this long period of time, it's going to be just too far out to to have that nice 100% coverage of the sun. There'll be partial eclipses, but not the total effect like will happen today in the States. It's just going to be an incredible experience. I'm so looking forward to it later on this afternoon as well. And like you say, for, for guys like you uh, with the astronomical band, this is like Christmas morning. Enjoy it, Gary. Uh, it doesn't happen all that often, but uh, uh, you know, it's just going to be a, a remarkable experience, and I really appreciate you taking some time to talk about it with us today. Thanks for this. Uh, my pleasure. Everyone observe in safety and, uh, and, and treasure the moments, treasure moments, uh, especially with, with children, because... Uh, We can look at pictures I mentioned before, but this is true science in motion. Absolutely. Thanks again, Gary. Take care now. Take care. Gary Boyle, the backyard astronomer, of course, the past president of the Royal Astronomical Society uh, up in Ottawa. Um, And uh, by the way, we mentioned there is going to be an official viewing, and it's going to be up at TV in Question Park. Uh, on Upper Wentworth, uh, right by the link. It's just the other side of the link from uh, from the Lime Ridge Mall. You know where McQuestion Park is. But uh, lots of places. I mean, you can see from all over the place. But there are going to be some astronomers up there as well. And uh, you can be able to rub shoulders with them and get some answers about some of the questions I'm sure you're going to have as this unfolds later on this afternoon. But don't look directly at it. That's the big message to take away from this. And don't let your kids do that either. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.